0: Trust obey. For there's no, no other way other way, no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and, and trust and obey. Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 21. Acts 9, 19 through 21. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? In our last few studies, we have examined the person of Saul of Tarsus and the remarkable circumstances leading up to his conversion to Christianity. Now, I want to spend a little time considering how remarkable the very fact of his conversion was and the implications it has on the Christian faith, both theologically and apologetically. In the text we've just read from Acts chapter 9, The Bible describes those who heard Saul immediately preach the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God, as being amazed, and that is the reaction we would expect them to have, because as they further reasoned, Saul was the one who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and came to Damascus for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. As we've already studied, the conversion accounts in Acts play a tremendously important role in Luke's ultimate purpose of presenting the establishment and increase of the kingdom of heaven on earth. The conversion of sinners back to the rule of God is one of the pillars of the kingdom. But of all the conversions in Acts and of the millions that have taken place since the book was written, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is outstanding." To use the language of Luke regarding those who first heard about it, it is amazing and worthy of special attention. In our special study on conversion, we noted that conversion is, of its very essence, a challenging and often painful experience. Arthur Nock defines conversion as the reorientation of the soul of an individual, his deliberate turning from indifference or from an earlier form of piety to another, a turning which implies a consciousness that a great change is involved, that the old was wrong and that the new was right. That is exactly and absolutely what it took for Saul to become a Christian. When he first appears in Scripture, he does not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is decidedly a non-Christian. In fact, he is an anti-Christian. We'll have more to say about that in just a moment. But he had a number of reasons not to convert, all of which had to be overcome. Shahi Jirgin, in an excellent sermon titled, Saul's Paralyzing Predicament, notes that this may account for why Saul was not converted on the Damascus Road or immediately after his experience there, but was given three days to process the decision before he made it. Jurgen points out that when we try to make highly complicated decisions, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, a region behind the forehead that is responsible for decision-making and control of emotions, sometimes shuts off. We can become so overwhelmed with a thought that we are unable to make a choice. From time to time, we need to step back and analyze the situation before we're truly able to commit ourselves one way or another. He suggests that during the three days between meeting Jesus and being visited by Ananias with the gospel invitation, Saul had to overcome four major psychological obstacles to accepting Christ. The first was Saul's family. According to Acts 21 verse 39 and 22 verse 3 Saul was born in a Roman city called Tarsus. The city of Tarsus was a major population center in the province of Cilicia in the southeastern region of Asia Minor. Lying on a significant commercial route, Tarsus felt the influence of cultural movements of that day, particularly Stoic philosophy. It's difficult to determine to what extent Greek thought affected Saul as a child, but his preaching seems to indicate that he was well trained in the poetry and literature of that world. Saul was born a Roman citizen, and while it is not known how his father or ancestors acquired citizenship, whether through military or other notable service, or some other means, it is certain that they were a family of tremendous reputation among the Jews as well as other peoples. Saul's superb Jewish education indicates that his family was also financially well-to-do. Saul describes himself as one circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, Philippians 3 and verse 5. And such a characterization, particularly the last phrase, perhaps served to distinguish him from those Jews in the dispersion who freely adopted Greek ways and became known as Hellenists. We've made this point before in previous studies, that Saul was a diaspora-raised Hebrew Jew. Moreover, according to Acts 22 and verse 3, he was educated in Jerusalem as a pupil of the highly renowned and respected rabbi, Gamaliel. It's worthwhile pointing out that Gamaliel is represented in later rabbinic literature as a teacher who had considerable appreciation for Greek culture, but he was also regarded as one of the eight greatest teachers of the Jewish law who ever lived. So what we are presented with in The Man of Saul is one who was given great opportunities in life because of his family. His family ensured that he was well taken care of and well educated in both secular Greek philosophy and the religion of their ancestors. His family was the reason he had what he had in life. And we ought to keep in mind what is often observed about the respect that ancients had for their fathers. Many suggest that the household conversions that we're going to see in the coming chapters of Acts, were the result of this intense familial piety that characterized the culture of that time. And if that's an accurate characterization of the world in which Saul lived, there's no reason to expect that he would have not shared that same disposition. Interestingly, and this is something we've not discussed before, there is strong evidence in the scriptures and the historical background data we have regarding Saul's culture that he was married at one time in his life. We certainly associate Paul as the unmarried apostle, and he was for most, if not all, of his Christian life and his apostolic life, but he may have been married earlier in life. As previously noted, Saul said in Philippians 3.5 that he was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and exceedingly zealous for the traditions of his fathers, Galatians 1.14. Marriage was the norm for a Pharisee, and it was required for rabbis. Paul was likely considered a rabbi and could hardly have set himself forth as an exemplar of Pharisaical virtue had he not been married. Further, we have evidence that Saul was married and the likelihood that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. According to Josephus, one of the qualifications for becoming a member of that body was that a man must be married and the father of children. Well, Saul was the superintendent, or at least one of them, of the stoning of Stephen after a trial before the Sanhedrin, Acts 7 and verse 58. He also gave his vote with the Sanhedrin against the Christians prior to his conversion by his own testimony in Acts 26 and verse 10. Further evidence of Paul's position is found in Acts chapter 9, where Paul went before the high priest and requested letters authorizing his official persecution and bringing Christians to trial and imprisonment. We've talked about that in the last few studies. It's unlikely that he would have been able to carry out this mission if he were not on the council, that he would have been able to have that level of authority and position. At the very least, he occupied some high-ranking position in subordination to the council and It seems unlikely then that he was radically opposed to the cultural norms of the day in his own life, and the norms of that day included marriage. Now obviously we cannot determine with any definiteness that Saul was married or not, but there is a large body of evidence that indicates that he was, and it is my opinion that he indeed was married. So the next logical question is, what happened to his wife? Regarding this question, there are two possibilities. She died, or they were divorced. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in his handling of marital issues, Saul proposes four classes of marital status. Virgin, unmarried, widow, and married. He seems to identify himself as an unmarried person in verse 8, which is the same word he uses to describe a woman who has been divorced in verses 10 and 11. Well, if the class known as unmarried generally refers to a person who has been divorced, it is possible that Saul was divorced. Many scholars have speculated that Paul's wife abandoned him after his conversion, and when Saul was confronted by the Lord, he had to consider how his decision would impact his relationship with his family, perhaps the knowledge that embracing Christ would mean losing them all forever. Second, Jurgen notes that Saul had to overcome the challenge related to his fame and fortune. While he had been schooled in the trade of tent-making, according to Acts 18.3, he seems to have intended on a career as a rabbi, and to that end he was in a fine position. His discipleship with Gamaliel set him on a path of great preeminence among the Jews. He was a member of the most popular order in Israel, the Pharisees, the only order that would survive the collapse of the Jewish state in AD 70, and he was clearly well-respected. We've already explored some of the indications and implications of that. As Jurgen noted, he was a rising star, and had he continued on this path, his success amongst his people would have been limitless. But to become a Christian was to step away from the institutional security of the Jews and the Pharisees and to enter into a life of support by charity from a band of people with no earthly headquarters or single leader, no foreign mission board or society to join in which to seek promotion. If he sought first the kingdom of God and his justification, he would have to let go of all that stability, and security, and live by faith. The third hurdle for Saul's conversion, according to Jurgen, was his religious faith. As we noted before, Saul, prior to becoming a Christian, was not merely a non-Christian, he was an anti-Christian. It was so amazing to hear him preach that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, because He denounced Jesus earlier as a fraud and imposter and condemned his followers as blasphemers even to the point that he considered them deserving of death and that to make them turn and blaspheme Christ himself would be, in his thinking, to bring these people to salvation according to his own words in Acts 26, 9-11. Some modern scholars attempt to downplay the impressiveness of Saul's shift in allegiance by claiming that he had already come to doubt the Judaism in which he had been raised, and had come to see it as overly legalistic and ritualistic. There's no evidence for this. In fact, all of the evidence is to the contrary. In Acts 26 and verse 9, he says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. The meaning here is that he believed in persecuting Christians he was doing God service he says that he was zealous in his opposition. Philippians 3 and verse 5. N.T. Wright comments on the Old Testament background of this statement. It has its roots in the narrative of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, who was zealous with the zeal of God among Israel, and because he killed those who broke the covenant and blasphemed the Lord, his people were spared, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, by God. You can read about this in Numbers twenty-five, eleven, and Psalm 106, verses 30 through 31. So far from discontent, Saul was consumed with his religious convictions. He was bound by them to press on in his opposition to Christianity and his devotion to Judaism. If he felt any shortcoming in them, which we'll consider in a later study, It drove him simply to strive more earnestly to fill up what was lacking in his own energy and rage so that he might reach that state of divine justification. To become a Christian required truly a complete reorientation of the soul for Saul. His entire disposition and understanding of what it meant to be justified before God had to be changed. Think of those who've spent all their life in a religious sect or system that teaches justification by faith alone. And one day they are brought to face a passage like Mark 16.16 or Acts 2.38. And they will respond, Well, I think Peter was really emphasizing repentance there and not baptism. And Jesus didn't say that he that is not baptized will be damned. That would have been the most normal reaction for Saul to even the clearest and most powerful challenge to his religion and spiritual security, to argue it away and simply move on. Finally, Jurgen observes that Saul would have had to overcome the loss of his freedom and personal liberty, even if and when he came to accept that what had happened on the road was real and that he must change his faith, His call to conversion carried with it a call to the ministry of apostleship, which was in many respects the same as the lives of the Old Testament prophets, whose tragic and tear-filled stories Saul would have known well. When Jesus said, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake, his mind might have immediately gone to, Jeremiah cast into the miry pit, or Ezekiel, lying on his left side for 390 days, or Isaiah being sawn in two, what would Saul suffer? What would he have to lose and lay aside to follow Jesus? These hurdles, and hurdles of these sort, create the very kind of situation that cause the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex to shut off and to prevent a decision from being made. So Jesus gave Saul three days to consider these things. But in those three days, what would become of him? He might be confronted with another psychological phenomena called cognitive dissonance. Half a century ago, a young social psychologist named Leon Festinger and two associates infiltrated a group of people who believed the world would end on December 21st, 1956. They wanted to know what would happen to the group when, as they hoped, the prophecy failed. The group's leader, who the researchers called Marion Keech, promised that the faithful would be picked up by a flying saucer and elevated to safety at midnight on December 20th. Many of her followers quit their jobs, gave away their homes, and dispersed their savings, waiting for the end. After all, who needs money in outer space? At midnight, with no sign of a spaceship in the yard, the group felt a little nervous. By 2 a.m., they were getting seriously worried. At 4.45 a.m., Mrs. Keach had a new vision. The world had been spared, she said, because of the impressive faith "'of her little band.' "'And mighty is the word of God,' she told her followers. "'And by his word have ye been saved. "'For from the mouth of death have ye been delivered, "'and at no time has there been such a force "'loosed upon the earth. "'Not since the beginning of time upon this earth "'has there been such a force of good and light "'as now floods this room.' "'The group's mood shifted from despair to exhilaration.' Many of the group's members who had not felt the need to proselytize before December 21st began calling the press to report the miracle, and soon they were out on the streets buttonholing passers by, trying to convert them. The engine that drives self-justification, the energy that produces the need to justify our actions and decisions, especially the wrong ones, is an unpleasant feeling that Festinger called Cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is a state of tension that occurs whenever a person holds two cognitions or ideas or attitudes or beliefs or opinions that are psychologically inconsistent, such as, Jesus is a dead imposter, and I saw him alive, and he talked to me three days ago. What do you do with that? Well, Saul might have reasoned The Christians practice witchcraft, and they've attempted to deceive me. He might have said, The Syrian desert is hot, and I saw a mirage. He might have made a thousand other arguments of a similar kind. But after three days of reasoning, he could only say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. For reasons such as these, Saul's conversion has been, since it occurred, one of the chief apologetic arguments for the reality of Christ's resurrection. This man, who had every reason to deny it, other than the fact that he had witnessed it, could not deny it, and it changed his life in the most dramatic ways and forever. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the Scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the Eleventh Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at Tulsa Church of Christ at gmail.com or visit Tulsa Church when, when we walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, in the light of, of His Word. What a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way. While we do His good will, While we do His good will. He abides with us still, He abides with us still. And with all who will trust and obey, trust and obey, trust, trust and obey. obey. Stay Stay trust obey. And obey. For they